Good evening, everyone. So how's, how, how are you doing? Tell me stories. Well, I would like to hear a story. Oh, okay. Um, I'm sure I'm not the only person who's uh, experiencing this now. It just seems like um, it's spilling over into my practice, just the general tension in the world. It seems like all day long I'm listening to people who are just dealing with a lot of family problems related to the economy. And I think one of the benefits of practice is and, and knowing how impermanent everything is and how interconnected everything is, that I can look at it with a, a, a little bit more healthy uh, detachment. I don't want to be truly detached from it. I want to be with the reality of what is. But it just seems, I no, I've noticed when I'm sitting that there's just a little bit more distraction and just sort of a general um, level of anxiety in the world is sort of spilling over. Yeah, it, it seems to be everywhere, doesn't it? Just, you know, you, you don't even need to be around people or, or be listening to news or anything. It's just in the air. It's, uh, you know, we're all, we're all, I think, a lot more connected than it appears on the surface, and, and uh, I think more than anything else right now, people are afraid. The tension that you're talking about is, is all the uncertainty, because uh, oops, right, that needs to be turned down. How's that? How's that? No. That's good, yeah. You know, and uh, of course, you mentioned the tensions that people have in, in their families. As uh, as people become more worried and more tense, uh, tempers become shorter and things are said and done. And it just kind of multiplies itself, doesn't it? But is it obvious how this is all created by by the mind? I mean, the only th- the only part of it that the, the the part of it that's real is is the suffering that people are experiencing. But everything else is it's uh, mostly psychological. So what I was experiencing through practices is that I I become I become more grounded and the the meditation process deepens. But in the past few months, I noticed that I'm struggling more with that, and I'm telling myself the same things that I've always been doing. But it seems like now I need to I don't know move it up a level or something, or maybe move it down a level. Or 
or something, but I'm just noticing that it's um, harder for me uh, to stay present in my practices. Do you mean that in your practice that you are experiencing more distracting thoughts? You know, it's not even specific as so much as a thought. It's it's like a vibration, a sort of jitteriness feeling of that gets carried over um, into my practice. Feeling of restlessness. Yeah, I guess I guess that is another word. Or you know, by restlessness, I mean. I'm just trying to say the same thing. It's a jitteriness, just a sort of tension. And a non-specific disquiet. And and so you just continue to practice and try to, to just let that be the way it is. I think that's probably all you can really do. Except that you might, you might find at some point that those those feelings start to crystallize out more as specific thoughts, or it becomes more obvious where they're coming from. And I, I've also noticed along with that, it's sort of interesting that. In some ways, it's almost easier to be a little bit more gentle with myself in the practice and maybe having sort of lowered expectations, um, being almost, well, I guess it's it's sort of an expansiveness of acceptance. So even though I'm a little bit complaining about this happening, there seems to sort of almost be a flip side yeah. of a benefit to it. It makes it makes everything that is um, a moment of solidity and and joy and quietness or whatever. It makes it even a little bit more precious. Well, that sounds really good. I like the sound of that. I, I like saying that. I didn't realize that when I started talking that, that I would get to that point, but. But just from listening to you and talking about it, I seem to get aware that there was a little bit of a, a benefit there, too. Yeah. Well, uh, that's sort of the answer to everything is just to be with what is and, and to not resist it, let it be. And Be present, whatever form it takes. Yeah. You said just a while ago that uh, that can we not see that most of this distress is caused by our mind? Yeah. Um, and while I understand that maybe the level of distress may be caused by our mind. When people lose their jobs, there's a reality to the fact of not knowing where their next meal is going to come from, how they're going to send their children to school or whatever. So that isn't just create that isn't created by the mind, is it? 
Well, the, the circumstances and the causes for those kinds of concerns are, are very real and they have consequences. Um, but if we if we look at the totality of the situation we're in, most of the tension that's in the air is, is coming from people that haven't at this time lost their job, but they're worried that they might be going to. And even those people that have lost their jobs, uh, some of them are, are in very, very difficult circumstances, but many of them are still coping and things may not be the way that they wish they were. But, you know, it, it's not really a total calamity, but it feels to them like it is. And that's really what I'm talking about, is their mind exaggerates the, the situation. And that's not in any count denying or trying to disregard that there are there are some people who are truly in very desperate circumstances. There are people that people of families that have lost not only their jobs but their homes and, and really literally don't even know where uh, their their next meal is coming from. But and it's not taking anything away from that, but what I was really thinking of when I said that is the degree to which no matter where any of us are in that spectrum, our minds tend to hugely amplify uh, and, and exaggerate the circumstances that we find ourselves in. change the topic here but I don't have the time to add to it of course but um, meditation practice and I have uh, continue to have once again a problem with saliva accumulating in my mouth mm-hmm. despite the correct seven point posture and uh, this attention given to swallowing that and I've worked with it a little bit but because this was a problem earlier, before I lost my practice, I now have a sense of impatience about it. And once again, <laughs> have to deal with this. And uh, I'm just wondering what your comments are about that. I have a feeling that it's just ultimately you have to continue to deal with it. <laughs> it's pretty <Yeah>. disruptive, <laughs> right? Because you can't get into deep meditation if. There's a part of me that wants to think of it this way, that you can still get into deep meditation with this with this problem, and that that falling deeper will just solve the problem. I mean... And, and, and I think that that's true. I, I think you can still get into a deep state of meditation, even though there's a lot of salivation and a lot of swallowing. And... Really, even with swallowing... Yeah, a, a body and 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 the salivation itself is, uh, you know, I I don't know that it's necessarily absolutely one hundred percent of the time that this is true, but I know in general, increased salivation is one of those bodily reactions that's associated with deepening concentration, the increase in, in salivation. So, you know. Uh, Just assume that it is and and keep practicing and don't 
be disturbed by it. Um, yes, with the swallowing, there's body movement associated with the swallowing. But the swallowing can happen pretty much automatically and naturally if you let it, much the way that the breathing does. And if your mind goes to it, you observe it, and uh, if, it, if it doesn't, it doesn't. You can still go into a very deep state of concentration. Uh, and a deep state of concentration doesn't necessarily entail uh, complete fixation on a single object. It you know, for example, if you're meditating on the breath and every second breath between the out-breath and the next in-breath you're swallowing, that just becomes a part of the whole rhythm, rhythm of, the, of the breathing and you're just aware of the swallowing in the same way. You just expand the meditation object to include the swallowing. Unless, of course, you find that you can just ignore it and after a while the swallowing happens by itself and you don't even, uh, uh, your attention doesn't even move towards it. But either way, you can exercise the same degree of concentration. So just, uh, I, I, th- I think the biggest thing is that you said the impatience of, oh no, now I've got to go through this again. It seems to be one bodily movement that's really it's ineloquent you know <laughs> because there's a, there's a forcefulness to it and it's you can do it mindfully but it's still going to be a little clumsy in its movement even though you, yeah. so it's just, that's the impatience it's like right that's the impatience that, you know come on yeah so accept it and practice not judging and being autonomous towards it. What I'm being forced to do. Yeah. And that's, I think that's probably what you need to do. Yes, what I need to do. If you didn't need to do it, it wouldn't bother you. <laughs> so, so that's good. Yeah. I, I think you pretty well figured out for yourself what you have to do there. I was just hoping there was some way around. Some magical answer. <laughs> I could say, do this and that and the swallowing will stop. But... To me, it speaks of like the chakras and the importance of the inner body. Because if I sit here, mm-hmm. I have basically no sensation in my body that's bothersome at all. It's just like, except it's all pulled right here at the throat chakra, and there's all this stuff going on right here. Right. That, oh, sit down. Okay, let's start just sitting down. Let's start and accumulate saliva and just have this whole life in my mouth right now that has to be, you know. And I just find that interesting. Right, because no one else would have that same. Well, that that is the that is the attitude you want to take. This is interesting. Not not why is this happening to me. Not why is this happening to me, but this is what's happening. This is interesting. This is this is what it is, and thank you. Good evening to the rest of you that have come in since we started talking here. It's good to see you. Oh, here comes some more.
Good evening to you. So, let's uh, everyone please get comfortable, get settled. There's some empty cushions up here at the front. Okay, you can hide in the back if you want. We're just about to begin our sit, so just please make yourself comfortable. That's a good sign. <laughs> uh, anyway, while Nancy's running to see, uh, because there's a wonderful retreat at the Kochi Stronghold with Tuladasa this coming weekend, so we want to give you some details about that for those of you who have not heard about it. Oh, wonderful. Yes, this coming weekend. Um, uh, starts Friday evening at 7. It's recommended you get there a little earlier if you can, and it goes through Sunday at about 4. They have a wonderful dormitory yurt that you can stay in, and it's absolutely a fabulous spot, and a special yurt for devoted just to meditation. Um, a beautiful and warm um, space to meditate in. So the flyers are here. They will be on the other floor, and we invite any of you who uh, would like to participate in that to do that. Um, for those of you who will be hanging around Tucson uh, this weekend and would like to lend some very valuable and much needed help, we need here Saturday and Sunday uh, volunteers to help us paint. Saturday we'll be preparing the kitchen in the front room, um, and then Sunny will be painting. And uh, we really are badly in need of volunteers. So if you would like to come and do a little sangha work, we'd love to have you. Thank you. So painting meditation and sitting meditation. I'm in charge. So. What should we talk about? Yes? Could you talk a little bit about metta? About metta? Yes. So, you know, you, we've been studying with you various meditation techniques and the six perfections and so on. 
and also by Abbas who did the, the wisdom retreat. Um, how does, where does myth have fit in with all of this? Yes, well, uh, that's, that's a good that's a good thing to talk about, yes. Um, metta <coughs> means uh, loving-kindness. That's how we usually translate it into English. It means uh, that loving attitude that's free of any sort of uh, attachment or expectation. That uh, it, it's, it's love that is... Uh, goes out for the well-being entirely for the sake of the well-being of others. And it is the first of what are called um, uh, the four Brahma-Viharas or uh, divine abodes. That's what Brahma-Vihara means. Um, The uh, the first is metta, loving kindness. The second is uh, karuna or compassion, uh, and the third is mudita, which means something like sympathetic joy. It means taking, taking, uh, sh- sharing in the joy of others, or. Uh, taking joy yourself in, in the happiness and satisfaction and reward experienced by others. And then the fourth is uh, uh, upeka, uh, which means uh, equanimity. And these, these are the four divine abodes. Um, in the Buddhist system of meditation, these four Ramavaharas, uh, each of them can be used as a meditation object for uh, achieving uh, uh, certain of the highest levels of uh, uh, concentrated attainment called the jhanas. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a very wonderful sutta called the Metta Sutta and there is a wonderful practice that is called Metta Meditation uh, it actually does form the basis for the uh, metta practice, which can lead uh, all the way to the experience of, of jhana, of, uh, of profound absorption. But it's something that is most commonly done uh, in, in its own right, as, as, uh, as a wonderful practice in itself. Um, what it consists in is generating certain very wholesome mental states in your own mind and then systematically projecting those towards others with the wish that others may experience those. And there's different variations. The, the one uh, uh, in the way that it's worded and the sequence in which it's practiced. But the form of meta-meditation that I do, what, what we do there is that first of all, you recognize that you would like to be free from suffering, uh, free from ill will, 
that you would like to be filled with loving kindness and that you would like to be happy. And so what you do is for each of these, you try to call to mind as best you can that particular mental state. So you say to yourself, uh, I wish to be free from suffering. And you, you through uh, imagination, recollection, uh, or, or maybe if you're lucky enough not to be experiencing any suffering in the moment, you just you come as fully as you can into that place of what it feels like to be completely free of any kind of suffering to be completely at ease. And then you say, may I be free from ill will. And in the same way, doing whatever is necessary to call up that mental state, that state in which you are absolutely free of any kind of ill will or animosity towards anything or anybody everywhere. In other words, you are completely at peace with all other beings. And, and with the world at large. So you're not only free from suffering, but you, uh, you, you try to call forth that feeling of being at, at peace with everything. And then you say, may I be filled with loving kindness. And then in, in a similar way, you call to mind as fully as possible that state, uh, however and whenever you have experienced it, of just feeling this genuine, sincere sense of, of caring for the well-being uh, of, of uh, others or of someone else in particular, or but that that feeling, and and that's a very wonderful, warm, heartwarming, glowing feeling of you know really sincerely caring for the well-being of others, and then finally you say, <clears throat> may I be truly happy. And and then you, building on the foundation that you've already created, you, you try to generate in yourself a feeling of happiness so that you are at ease, at peace, in a state, uh, in a loving state of grace and with happy happiness as much as you can. Then, in the next stage of the meditation, you say, just as I wish to be uh, <clears throat> free from suffering, free from ill will, filled with loving kindness, and truly happy, so do all beings. And so may all beings uh, enjoy uh, this state. What you do then is call to mind those people that are close to you, who it is very easy for you to to generate the wish that they experience, this feeling that you called up in yourself. And uh, if you can, you imagine, you imagine, you choose the first person, you imagine that person and just picture if, if you can, whatever you think, wherever you think they may be and whatever you're doing, and you just send them the, the, these feelings. Uh, and you imagine that perhaps just in this moment, without knowing why, they will find themselves just experiencing that ease and peace and, and, and love and happiness. And then you go on in this way, systematically go through those, uh, those people that come to mind, which usually we start with uh, 
our family and our friends, our mentors, those for whom it's really easy and natural to do with this with. And then we move beyond that to those people that we're not so close to, that uh, we may experience naturally somewhat more reserve in the protection and projection of these feelings. And we practice projecting these feelings as a gift towards them. In the same way, choosing some some uh, something that you can visualize that is emblematic of, of this group of people, this category of people, and imagine them too in this moment, just as you send in this wish that they just will experience being filled with these beneficial emotions. And then you start moving on to more neutral people, and then finally to the people that you might consider that are, are your your enemies or your nemesis or the problems in your life. And you practice uh, sending them these wishes. And so this this is this is the progression in which you would do this practice. Uh, and you can easily spend 45 minutes or an hour doing this, but the basic the basic practice is, is is the same thing over and over again. It's trying to bring up these men, this men, these mental states in your own mind, and then visualize others to whom you're sending them to. So in the course of the practice, all that really changes is who you're sending them to. So now this this practice, of course. One of the most immediate benefits is if you spend an hour generating feelings of, uh, of, of being uh, uh, at ease, at peace, loving, and happy, uh, you're going to feel a lot of those positive emotions yourself, in yourself. But uh, it's also going to carry, that's going to carry uh, forward when you get up from meditation, and it will be very easy and, and natural to to continue to project these feelings towards the people that you encounter. Of course, because you're also practicing sending these feelings to those people that you might normally in your daily life uh, uh, not like or, or avoid the company of or, or find objectionable in some way, you'll find that your attitude towards them can begin to change and shift as well and you come into a much more wholesome state of mind. Um, have any of you uh, heard uh, of the, uh, the uh, Tibetan monk, uh, a Frenchman, Mathieu Ricard? And uh, this is the main practice that he has done, I think, for something like 30 years. And when they hooked him up to some EKG machines, they found that part of his, the parts of his brain that... Uh, uh, the, uh, the, that correspond to those that uh, are more active when when people are happy just were virtually off the scale when he uh, well even when he wasn't practicing but then when he would do this practice so it's, this is kind of this is a kind of transformation that meta meditation can uh, produce in a person but it also can be used as a concentration practice. Now, there are some forms of meta-meditation that you may come across, you may read about in books, that involve a, a, a 
rather long and ritual recitation of lines. And uh, I, I personally never found those very satisfying. The, the, the form of meditation that's most powerful for me is where you generate those emotions rather than uh, generating the words that correspond to those wishes. But there are, that's amongst the variations in this practice that you'll come across. In, in those more formulaic versions of it, you, uh, you go through these uh, lists of all different kinds of beings and uh, those that are to the north and the south and the east and the west and above and below and, and move on to the next kind of being and, you know, so that's another way of, of doing the meditation instead of just focusing on people. Mm-hmm. It's all these different kinds of, of beings. Uh, insects and animals and, and ghosts and devas and uh, all kinds of other things. And in all of the four directions and above and below. So, so. Can I ask uh, what... Uh, what aroused your interest in metta meditation? Well, I've, I've been reading a little bit about it, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and um, and it's just that it's something that we haven't in the time yeah. that I've been studying with you that we haven't touched on. You know, You're right. It's have... it's something that we haven't. Uh, when I first started teaching here, they were regularly doing metta meditation sessions the evening before, Wednesday evenings, and as far as I know, I guess that's not going on anymore. Is that, is that right? I, I, if nobody knows, it means it's not happening. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, it's neglect on my part not to have introduced that aspect of practice, which, uh, that might be a good thing to do sometime. Um, yeah. So it's a wonderful suggestion. Thank you. Yeah. I just uh, listening to you talk. I don't know why, but it um, made me reminded me to just let people know that there's uh, an ongoing sand mandala at the University of Arizona bookstore basement on the Kala Chakra. There's a monk there every day from basically from the morning till about five o'clock in the afternoon, um, making that very intricate and big circular one monk because his assistant couldn't come uh, for some reason and so I was there yesterday and I was watching him and people, all kinds of people would come up and ask him questions you know and I kept thinking how's he ever going to get this done because <laughs> he has to answer the questions and then he does his little thing <laughs> amazing anyway just let you know yeah. that and that's going on till March 15th when it will yeah. be destroyed, destroyed. <laughs> That's I, I I don't know if everyone here maybe you're not familiar with the, the this particular tradition of the sand paintings, but color it's it's the most intricate work of art that you can imagine made out of colored grains of colored sand, not glued together or anything else, just very very carefully placed to to create this very intricate and very beautiful piece of art and when it's done it's destroyed all the sand is swept together mixed all colors mixed up 
And it's a very powerful thing. And uh, so. You said it was for peace. That was the main purpose of the Kala Chakra Mandala. Peace and time and lot. You know, there's a lot to say. Of course, uh, there's a lot about impermanence in, in that, and non-attachment. Normally, if somebody spent weeks creating something that was was just amazingly beautiful and awe-inspiring, uh, it would be a lot of attachment, right? <laughs> and that's really the idea, is just to, to do something that is... Uh, so predisposing to attachment and, and then to sweep it all away. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. You're welcome. Yeah. And he's there every day. No breaks. Including Sunday. Mm-hmm. Or there's maybe one Monday he's not going to do. Yes. I've been thinking about um, right effort. Yes. And with me, um, when I try, I get tense. Mm-hmm. So I'm always feeling the parts of my body that are getting tense and trying to let up. And um, and it seems like as I've gotten more able to not be tense, which is not always, but sometimes. Then I feel like I'm not trying hard enough. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I don't know. Maybe you can just talk about how you continue to have effort and not feel like you're having effort. And then part of effort is greed, and you know, so you're getting tense because you want to get better at something, and so that's a type of greed. And um, and it's pretty deep seated. I mean, we, we we go to school and we get. Mm-hmm. We get tense, so we'll do well and get good grades. And and when you really look at it, that also is a kind of greed. Yes, it is. And so effort in itself seems to me Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, to be a kind of greed. So um, (laughs) when you relax and you're not uh, you're not getting tense and you're not uh, focusing yourself quite as thoroughly. it seems to me you, you get into a whole new place where um, <laughs> where you just keep doing it and you're not quite sure why you're doing it. <laughs> I don't know. Does that, does that make any sense? Well, it, it you know it, effort itself doesn't carry any of these these things of, of judgment and. <laughs> greed and aversion and everything. These are all added on to them. You can see that. that Effort is just effort. Yeah, but you do it because you're trying to change something. Well, you're you're very much conditioned. You You don't necessarily have to even be trying to change something to to uh to make effort. Effort is just effort. Effort is just uh the flow of a particular kind of, of energy, and it, it needn't have anything in particular attached to it, but it usually does. 
and and that's fine, even though it does, uh, even though there is, uh, for example, the the effort that's made to to do the practices that will bring us to uh, to awakening. You know, the the desire for uh, awakening or enlightenment, and and to do anything requires a certain amount of effort. You have to you have to move the body or you have to move the mind. And to produce any kind of movement is just sort of like the laws of physics that, that uh, uh, no change takes place unless there is some, uh, some force exerted that, that produces that change. And that's all, that's really what we mean by effort. And uh, the, the goals towards which uh, that can be Directed, there, there's all kinds of them. You know, you, you make effort to bring happiness to someone else, and that's not something that you would necessarily see in terms of, of greed, right, or aversion. But it's unfortunate that effort carries, and, and for uh, for you know, you're uh, you're not in the least unusual in, in this regard. You know. Um, there's a natural tendency that humans have uh, not to make effort unless they can see some benefit or uh, unless there's some threat that's associated with not making effort. You know, it's like kids being told to brush their teeth and make their bed. You know, that takes effort, and unless you, you know, create some kind of incentive, they don't they don't want to do it. And so we we tend to have all of these associations with with making effort, which is why uh, why we need to overcome them and to appreciate that we may not necessarily realize it, we may not necessarily have noticed it, but we actually make effort all of the time that's coming from a place of happiness or joy or of, of giving or, or good wishing, or just uh, spontaneously out of uh, the, the good feeling and happiness that we're experiencing in the moment, we do this all the time. If you just see that effort is just any anything that produces movement and change in the mind and the body, that there's a lot of that going on spontaneously. It's not all the things that we force ourselves to do, even though we'd rather not because there's some goal, or that... Uh, uh, I, I think maybe one of the worst things about effort is the idea that we get that if we're not making effort, there's something wrong with us. That we're, we're failing, that we're, uh, uh, we're... we're being negligent because we're not, we're not making effort. And that, of course, easily translates to, well, if we're not suffering, then we're not trying hard enough, right? So, uh, the only way we can feel good about ourselves is to make ourselves feel bad. <laughs> uh, well, it's, it sounds pretty funny, but isn't, isn't it a pretty accurate description? You know? So, you want to meditate, you want to reach a state of inner peace, so, but if you're in the habit of thinking, well, okay, I'm going to sit down and, you know, if this isn't hard, I'm, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. So, you know, you end up slipping into those old kind of 
patterns of, of thinking and reacting. And, and, and that's fine. That's, uh, we're conditioned to do that. But when you recognize that that's happening, then you can begin the process of unraveling all of these other things that are tangled up with the with the idea of so something so simple as making effort. In a sense, uh, the difference between things that are alive and those that are not alive is exactly that. It's the generation of effort. You know, even just a, a plant growing towards the sky in the sunlight is a kind of, uh, of effort, and it's the essence of life. And so, uh, what I would suggest that you do is sort of attack this on multiple different fronts. You know, you can, first of all, just notice when you're making effort that is that, that is spontaneous and comes from some kind of joy rather than feeling like it's coming from a place of necessity or, or should or, or so forth. Just just to just to start familiarizing yourself with the fact that uh, that effort can as easily be natural and spontaneous and joyful as it can be uh, forced and associated with uh, these other less pleasant feelings. And then the other thing is that be mindful whenever that you find that you uh, are starting to slip back into uh, running those loops of, you know, I, I need to be trying hard enough, or you find that you're tensing up because you feel like you're supposed to make effort. You know, I think that a lot of what we do, and of course, I have to base this on my inner experience because I don't know about the rest of you, but I wouldn't be surprised if it isn't the same. That when when you feel like uh, you're supposed to be trying hard or struggling, uh, that you're supposed to be pushing yourself beyond some point that you would like to push yourself, that we create causes of discomfort in ourselves that really have nothing at all to do with the activity that we're doing and the effort we're exerting. You know, And it may very well be that at some unconscious level, if you sit down to meditate and you tense up your muscles, there's some part of your mind that thinks, well, in order to feel good about my practice, there needs to be some discomfort. And uh, the easiest way to produce some discomfort is to tense up some muscles in the body. So you're just kind of doing that just so that you'll feel like you're, you're, you're really doing the job you're supposed to. But just try to bring some mindfulness to bear on that, to examine it, and, and see if you can catch yourself doing that. And then more than just... You know, I, it's very important when you find tension in your body to let go of it when you're meditating. And you should always do that. Just every now and then check into your body and, and, and see if there's tension developing. And a lot of times it's not going to be the sort of thing that I just described. It's what, you know, if you if you are observing the breath and you're trying to observe the breath with great clarity, uh, you might, without 
consciously being aware of it, start tensing up the eyes and your fore- uh, the muscles in your forehead and around your eyes. You know, and so you you want to let go of that, or you might uh, just because of the place that you usually tense up when you're trying hard is your shoulders. You might do that. So watch watch out for that and let go of it. But also be mindful of the possibility that that your body might just be tensing up to satisfy your mind's need to feel like you're really trying hard. And, and just look for that. <laughs> it's a ha- that's right, it's a habit. And, um, you know, depending on how much time and energy you've put into creating and reinforcing that habit, it might not go away right away. But the wonderful thing is, though, that it doesn't take nearly as much time and effort to overcome habits as it does to to create them. So, but yeah, effort. The effort you make, uh, you want to be joyful effort. And even if you need to take a little time in your meditation to reflect on that, you know, something in, in along the lines of, well, the reason I'm meditating here is to become a uh, better and happier and more relaxed uh, uh, person, more, more at peace with myself and with the world, you know. And the, these are all in themselves uh, joyful things to be striving for. So, so make your striving a joyful one. Do you realize how much of your time and energy goes into different parts of your your mind struggling with each other. And it's really helpful just to, just to start realizing that that's what's happening. Because our ordinary way of, of thinking and talking about you know the the I me and mine uh, of my mind and my psyche and my emotions, <coughs> treating them as though there's some sort of unity there and as though we have some sort of control over these things. You know, none of that's true. But when we think and talk that way, we're we're creating an impossible dilemma for ourselves. You know, I want to do this, but I can't because of that, or you know, you know, I'm in conflict with myself, and you know, and, and that's that's very confusing. How how can I be in conflict with myself? You know, chopped up in pieces. Well, what you that's why it's really important to come to understand who and what you really are. Know yourself. Come to know yourself. That's the first step towards 
your life becoming a whole lot better is knowing yourself. And uh, so, what what is your self composed of? This exam time. Here's a quiz. All right. The five aggregates. The five aggregates. The five constituent components. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Which are? Body, feeling, perception, mental formation, consciousness. Right. Very good. And do those... Do those words by themselves uh, adequately convey the meaning and understanding of this idea? You need to you need to explore these and try to what the, what this is is it's a very condensed and compact expression of a lot of very profound <coughs> truth, and um, so you have to penetrate into it uh, quite a bit before it starts to become particularly useful. But where you're sitting right now, just take a moment and ask yourself, well, what am I? And, and how does this apply? Look at the consciousness part of it. Are you conscious? How do you know you're conscious? That's kind of a silly question, isn't it? I mean, the only way that you can answer the question that you know you're conscious is to be conscious of being conscious, right? How much of what you are does this consciousness constitute? Anybody care to offer a, an answer to that? Is consciousness everything? Or is consciousness just a tiny little part of it? Or how does consciousness fit into the totality of who and what you are? It seems to be surrounded. Is there a lot to you that is not conscious? Yeah. There is. There's an awful lot to each of us that's not consciousness. But on the other hand, doesn't that conscious part seem to be extremely important? I mean, in the course of a day, we are sometimes more conscious and sometimes less conscious. And and, and what are the most important... uh, You know, in terms of if we are the stream of uh, uh, conscious experience, then... That that sort of defines uh, the the role that consciousness plays in, in terms of relative importance. There's times when you're asleep at night that you are a little bit conscious, even though you're asleep, you're not conscious the way you are when you're awake. And then there's times when you're dreaming, which might seem almost like being conscious in the way that you're awake. But there's also times when you're just sort of in a very, uh, very sort of distance and and minimal stage of consciousness, but you're still conscious. 
And then there's those parts of your day that at least as far as at least as far as you know, uh, there's no consciousness there at all because you have no knowledge of those parts of your day or those parts of your night when you're asleep, right? So there's consciousness sort of expands and contracts as, as we go through through the day. And then some things we're conscious of, but there's so much that we're not conscious of at all. So consciousness is a very important part of who and what we are, but it, it's a long way from the whole thing. And it plays its own very, very special role. And that's why in this definition of what an individual is, of these five aggregates, consciousness has been separated out because, because it has a rather unique role to play uh, in our understanding of ourselves. And it needs to be sort of set apart from the rest in order to, to really be able to understand it. along the same lines. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the three characters are Dukkha, Anicca, Anatta. Anatta yeah. is no self or not self. Yes. And um, is that, uh, is that, is the experience of not self, what kind of an experience is that? <laughs> okay, that's it's it's the opposite of the subjective experience that we uh, frequently have that we are a self. Uh, the the not self, the an atta, the atta, uh, the atta is like a soul, some part of us that is is is. is permanent that's unchanging, it's always us. It's the essence of our unique selfhood. That's the atta that doesn't exist. And because because, uh, the the, the self is is also the same word that we use to describe uh, that 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 we are that is constantly changing, that's, that's impermanent uh, and subject to suffering and everything else, it's a little bit confusing, you know, because it's not that we don't have a self. We do have a self. You have a self. I'm a self. But what is the self? Well, on the one hand, the self of each of us is that particular set of these five aggregates, of these five constituent elements. In one sense, that's what the self is. If we want to if we want to study ourselves, if we want to understand ourselves, if we want to change and improve ourselves, that's that's the self that we need to work with. It's this this five aggregates, and, and it's real, but it's constantly changing. It's it's impermanent. It's subject to suffering, and it's not an, an atta. It's anatta. 
It is, there's not a soul in here. This is, this is just what it's described as, a collection of, of five different uh, uh, five different collections, five different aggregates of similar kinds of things, constantly changing over time. And it's also in examining that that we can discover that there, there, there isn't any other self except this. But in another sense, the self that we have, the self that gets offended, that gets hurt, that gets angry, the self that suffers, the self that desires, the self that fears, the self that hates, this is something else entirely. This is a self that's actually just a very small subset of these five aggregates that is created by the mind. And when your mind creates this, it leaves out a whole lot of stuff. A lot of it leaves out on purpose because you don't like to think of yourself as some of the things that are properly speaking a part of this five aggregates. You know? And, and so when our mind creates this imaginary self that we feel like we are, you know, I am this kind of person and I'm definitely not like that, so don't you suggest that I am. <laughs> this imaginary thing that we create, it's, it's something that's generated by the mind um, uh, as a part of its functioning. And, and, and it's, a, it's just kind of this arbitrary definition that's generated that, that this is me. But we're very attached to that. And as long as we're attached to that, as long as we feel that that's the, what we are, then um, if you do certain kinds of things, they're going to make this self of mine suffer. And in turn, this self is going to generate actions and reaction to that. And, and that's how this whole mess just keeps going on. Right? So to realize anatta is to recognize this mental construct for what it is. It's just a mental construct. It's just something that my mind generates, which sometimes is useful, helps to keep my laundry separate from yours, but it does a lot of things that aren't useful, and a lot of times it's a problem. But the most important thing about the experience of anatta is just that recognizing that, yeah, that this, this isn't a substantial reality. It's empty. It's a projection. It's a projection of my mind, and I don't need to suffer because of it. And I don't need to cause suffering because of it. And I don't need to expend all kinds of time and energy trying to gratify it. That's, that's the experience of anatta, is being liberated from this enslavement to an idea. And that all of your effort and energy, and, and even your... Uh, morality has to be turned over to the benefit of this imaginary being that you call yourself. That's a tremendous liberation to see through that illusion and to let go of that. And that's what we need to do. Uh, It's there. We accept it's there, but it can be Transcended, it can be overcome, and it can be understood. And one very important part of 
overcoming that illusion and transcending it is I have this feeling that I'm myself. Well, let's let's look at the things that make me up and see if I can and find it in there anywhere. You have to satisfy yourself that it's not there because it feels like it is. It does. It feels it feels like it is. And we worry about it. And we fear for it. So. But what you really are, you see, all of these things are tied up uh, to, 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 together in, in what creates the kind of experience that we ordinarily have. Um, these five aggregates, another one that's very, very important it's gigantic. It's a, the, the mental formations aggregate. It includes so much. Consciousness and feelings and perceptions are all things to do with the mind as well. And they have been separated out. And everything else that we would think of as mental is lumped together into what's called the mental formations the aggregate of mental formations. This is a very interesting aggregate. It includes all of your concepts and ideas of things. It includes the way the relationships that are stored in your mind, relationships between those things, so that out of those concepts and ideas you have... an idea of the world. You have more out of simpler concepts and ideas, more complex concepts and ideas are built up out of that. You know, they're linked together like pieces, uh, like like the nails and boards that make a house and the houses that make a city and the city that makes a nation and so forth. So what they all are ultimately is mental processes, mental formations, mental, mental processes. Um, Smaller, very discrete, very tiny mental processes grouped together to make larger mental processes, uh, organized together in complexes that can perform more sophisticated functions. But this is your mental formations, ideas and concepts and the relationships between them, and intentions. A huge part of your mental formations are a lot of stored (coughs) intentions. Every time you ever made a decision that took the form of an intention, it got stored there. And when those circumstances come up again, that intention that you generated back whenever it was last time, that gets activated. And so the intention that arises in the moment, you may feel like, oh, I decided I would. But did you really? A lot of the times, you just replayed an intention that was generated sometime in the past. You, this, this aggregate of mental formations includes a huge number of, uh, of, of intentions that just get activated. Yes? It sounds almost like it's a culturation, that mental formation is a culturation. Well, acculturation is part of mental formation. When you become acculturated, you are acculturated in the sense that there are all of these mental constructs that have been generated 
in the process of your acculturation and internalized and incorporated. And so now they are part of what you are. They determine, they determine how you're going to perceive certain things, what judgments you'll ge- uh, generate, what feelings, positive and negative, you'll have an association with them, your behavioral reactions, which you might say and do, all of this. And, and this, is, this is built up piece by piece over time and from many different sources. Some from our own direct experience, some from what we, the influences of others and what we read and hear and so on and so forth. But we've built up this mass of mental formations that is always there and we carry it around with us. Our emotions. Our emotions, emotions are part of the mental formations. <clears throat> Not only the emotions, but the mechanisms that cause certain emotions to arise under certain circumstances. That's part of your mental formations. Yeah. How does an emotion differ from a feeling? Well, in terms of the five aggregates, when we say feeling, we are not referring to emotions or mental states. We're referring to nothing other than the affective quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Okay? So when we say, say the aggregate of feelings, we don't mean the aggregate of happiness, sadness, anger, fear, etc., etc. Because those are all part of the aggregate of mental formations. We mean the aggregate of, uh, of feels good, feels bad, feels good, feels good, feels really good, feels bad, feels really bad, feels neutral. That's what we mean. That's, what's, that's a very simple aggregate. Uh, in a way, it's like consciousness. It's simple but it's hugely important, and it's because it's hugely important that it's sort of separated out from the rest. The experience of pleasant, unpleasant, and, and neutral. And what's really important to understand about that aggregate is it really has five parts to it, not three. It's physical pleasant, physical unpleasant, mental pleasant, mental unpleasant, and neutral. And it's very important to distinguish between the physical and the mental to see that as five, not three. Because you won't, in, in order to, to, to really penetrate into the sense in which this description of five aggregates really is describing who, who and what you are in a way that's useful and workable, you have to make that distinction. But you see the mental formations. You know, the whole subconscious mind that uh, psychoanalysis and Freudians and Jungians and, and all of the more modern psychologists talking about. They're really talking about working with that mass of complex interconnected mental formations that you have built up, that has grown up. And you realize that everything that happens, when, when you hear a sound and there comes to mind a label that what makes that sound, that's your mental formations. That came, that's where that came from. That your recognition, every object that you recognize, your recognition of it, all that you really have is some simple sense data. But there is this little mechanism in there that says when this particular combination of sensations arises, this is the identity that goes with it. This is the concept. But it doesn't stop there. Because associated with that concept is all the other stuff 
including the judgments and and whether or not that particular concept should be associated with mental feel good or mental feel bad. You know, regardless, the sensation itself as physical, the physical aspect of the sensation may come up with a label pleasant, but when the mental concept is associated with it, it may come up with a label unpleasant. So these two don't, you know, I mean, that's why they're really important to see the difference with. But in every moment, what you experience is an outcome of the working of that mass of mental formations. Can you see that? Your sensations will be interpreted on the basis of the pre-existing mental formations. And that's the perception you'll have. Ah, my perception. That's one of the aggregates, right? Perceptions. We are a collection of perceptions. We have sensations, and then, due to the action of the mental formations, we give rise to perceptions. The perceptions we have, that's the reality that we live in. Your personal reality are those perceptions that your mind generates. So and your mind. What's that? Those are different than sense perceptions. Well, in English we could speak of sense perceptions, but how we're meaning here in the aggregate of perceptions is, is we're, we're making a distinction between the sensation in its pure, natural, raw, if you will, form, and the perception that arises secondarily to that. You know, you hear a sound and you perceive that's a car, that's a bird. There's a shape in front of you. That's a person. Oh, that's a good person I like. Well, that's, you know, these are all perceptions. So if you can distinguish between just the pure sensory experience, which you can have perceptions of pure sensory experience, but we don't very often. I mean, of course, obviously you can have sense perceptions, but you think about it. You don't very often have sense perceptions. You have mental perceptions and you just sort of glossed over the sensation. It came and went so quickly you didn't even notice it. That's most of where we live. So we say your reality is a perceptual reality. Your personal reality is this perceptual reality and it has its origins in this mass of mental formations. Yeah? So with um, form, what is the... um purpose of that one, because I'm thinking of Shinsen Young's um, touch mm-hmm. label, and I'm just sitting here, I basically don't have a body, That's I right. have a sensation, mm-hmm. and is it just yeah. emphasizing the sense gateway of sight? Yes, the, the aggregate of form, now, it under some circumstances, it may be convenient for us to simply refer to the aggregate of form as that which is physical, you know, the body. The body, this is form. But that is, that's rather sloppy and careless and superficial. When we really look at the aggregate of form, it is sensations. The body is a perception, and that perception is produced out of the mass of mental formations. What you have is touch, sound, uh, taste and smell, uh, and uh, color, 
an intensity, a color and intensity of light. This is what you actually have. Everything else, you know, when you identify what the source of the touch is, when you categorize the sound in some way, be it be it uh, as in terms of the source of the sound, like that's the sound of a car, or more abstractly, that's music, or that's uh, Beethoven's fifth, or whatever. This, where's that coming from? That's not coming from the sense organ. That came after. That came a step later. What comes from the sense organ, that's just a sensation. The aggregate of form, when you examine it carefully, when you penetrate into it, it really isn't body. Because what we usually think of as body is part of the aggregate of mental formations. The aggregate of form is the sensations out of which we have generated those mental formations that we call up when we experience touch or see the parts of our body or anything else like that. Okay, so the concept of body is coming from the mental formations, but are you saying that uh, the experience of sensation, which... Sensation just happens. It doesn't doesn't come from mental formation. No, it doesn't. It happens independently of mental formation. But in sensation, is that the first heap, or does it not fall in any of the five heaps? The sensation is the heap called form, or rupa. Ultimately, rupa, when we say, what is rupa? When we investigate rupa, we say, oh, well, that's the body. Oh, well, that's physical. But then as we look at it closer and closer, we find, no, there's nothing there but sensation. That's what rupa is. That's what the aggregate of form is, is sensation. But what about form like that chair? Mm-hmm. Are you saying that sensation because it's perceived by the eye or something like that? When you look over there, what you experience is, is visual sensation. And you recognize a chair there. You know, there's... Uh, but that's coming from your mind. You know, there's, there's... I don't know if he does it anymore, but there's one teacher that what he always loved to do is have a ballpoint pen and point out that... To you, this is a ballpoint pen, but to the dog, it's a chew toy. Because the the fact is that the visual organ is detecting the same patterns of color and light, but what is perceived depends on the mental formations, not on the organ and not on the visual organ. That comes, you know, two completely different steps. So sensation is the aggregate of form, and form is sensation. So So what you are right now, you are a collection of sensations which you are probably not experiencing as sensations, although some of them you could right now. You're probably mostly consciously aware of the perceptions that have been generated secondarily from those sensations. And those perceptions have arisen out of this massive mental formations that you have built up and carry with you. And so, whatever you're going to experience in the next moment, and the next, and the next, and tomorrow, and the next day, is determined by that mass of mental formations. This is the source, this is the origin of your personal reality, is those mental formations. Now, 
in each experience you have, you add to those mental formations. And if you commit actions, then those actions become part of the mental formations. The intentions that gave rise to those actions are what actually resides permanently as a part of the mental formations. The actions themselves, it's like, you know, I'm going to reach for this cup. All that really happens is I produce the intention. The rest of it, the movement of my hand and the grasping, you know, that happens by itself. What my mind generated was the intention, and that's what gets stored, is the intention. These intentions have roots, and the intentions that are stored as a part of that mental formations may be rooted in, you know, we can categorize all, there's many different ways we could describe the roots of our intentions, but it is actually uh, <coughs> possible to take a fairly simple categorization and see them in terms of things like desire and aversion and ignorance as opposed to generosity, loving-kindness, and, and wisdom. That, too, is a part of what's stored in your mental formation. So when we talk about karma, you know, we say, let's tie this together. You might have heard it said that whatever you experience, that's the result of your karma. Accept it. Because it is, you know, you own your karma. It is your past actions that are responsible for the experience you have in the moment. Well, I just told you the experience you have right now is produced by your mental formations. And all of the actions that you ever committed in the past and their consequences have been incorporated into that massive mental formations. So you see how karma works? There's no mysterious power somewhere out there keeping sources. Oh, another bad one. I'm going to have to get some payback on that one of these days. You know. Oh, well, there's a good one. That kind of cancels that one out. You know, That's not happening anywhere else. There's no God, no divine being, no... Uh, supercomputer somewhere keeping score on everybody that reads your mind and dishes out the consequences. It happens just this simply that you are constantly creating your mental formations in every moment. And your mental formations are constantly creating the reality that you find yourself in in every moment. And it's that simple. Your karma determines your experience and you the way that you react to your experience determines your future. That's the karma that you make right now. Yeah. I've got one problem with that, mm-hmm. and that's that my mental formations aren't just me. Are they? What do you mean your mental formations aren't no, just I mean, you? The way we're talking about mental formations, I don't see how they could be confined to my illusory self-perception. They're not. Your your self-perception is a very limited subset of mental formations generated as a result of those mental formations. What you are, there's a huge mass of mental formations there and you're not aware of most of it. You don't know why you like certain things and don't. 
But if you could unravel it, in many cases, you, you, could, you could actually trace it down to, to specific events in your past that cause you well, to have those likes and dislikes. Uh, it's a scenario of interdependence. That's mm-hmm. part of what I'm saying. Is yeah. So. You just have to become responsible for everything. What's that? You just have to conceptualize it as you and become responsible for everything. Yeah. And, you know, and it, do you have anything to add to that? Do you see what my well, conceptual if, dilemma is? If, we, if we're going to say, well, what am I really? There's what do I feel like I am. There's this self that I feel like I am. Mm-hmm. And there's this idea of who I am. But then there's what you really are. Mm-hmm. And what we're saying is what you really are is these five aggregates. Well, not, they're just not me. I mean, well, well okay, I'm in, in that fact. As much as anything at all can ever yes. be said to be you, they are you. Mm-hmm. But they are, all of them, constantly changing. I mean, we talked about how consciousness sort of expands and contracts, comes and goes, conscious of this, conscious of that. So much that we're not conscious of. Visual consciousness touch consciousness, all of mind consciousness, all of these different kinds. Consciousness is constantly changing. It's, it's impermanent. It's variable. It uh, contributes to our suffering and everything else. Sensations, boy, if, I mean, this is, when we want to learn about impermanence, the place to go is our sensations because, man, they just, there's just nothing. But it's a rushing river of constant change. And we come to realize that Wow, and my mind has made everything out of this constant river of rushing change. You know, so we get in touch with impermanence. Feelings, every sensation that comes and goes, and every mental formation that that comes into prominence in one moment or the next is associated with some feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So that too, I mean, you know, that's constantly constantly changing. And and, and the unpleasant is what we usually attribute our suffering to, you know. So, our perceptions, perceptions, our perceptions have no solid ground. They're just a projection of the mind based on all these mental formations, which themselves are constructed, which themselves have been built up and accumulated, and which themselves are constantly changing. And that's the good news, is that we can change them dramatically, really quickly. You know, that's the wonderful news is that the mental formations can be changed. If the experience that you have is a result of your mental formations and you can, through, through the uh, intentional actions of your mind, alter your mental formations, you can create your reality. You can alter your reality. Yeah. So, um, are you talking simply about how you respond to... Things or are you talking about your act? Like if I'm walking down the street and a car flips up a rock and it hits me in the head, mm-hmm. um, how I, I can see how my reaction to that is karmically determined. Yes. But is the impact of the the physical damage to my head determined by my karma? No. Okay. The the experience that you have of it. Uh, when asked about that. The Buddha was asked, so is everything caused by karma? And karma said, and the Buddha said, no, there's five kinds of causality. There's physical causality, material causality, which is, you know what that is. There's biological causality, 
and that's based on the physical. I mean, it, I'm sure you all know enough about biology to know that that what makes ants ants and elephants elephants is DNA and biochemical processes. And so, biological causality is based in physical causality. The Buddha said this mental causality. Now, unfortunately, sometimes that's spoken of as the involving supernatural powers, but that's not what he was referring to as minds. Minds come out of the biological, which comes out of the physical. Well, you know that. Your mind your mind is directly supported by your brain. And your brain is a physical organ. You know, um, go drink a bottle of whiskey or take a drug or have somebody hit you in the head with a rock and immediately you know that, yes, you know, the mind, the mind is very directly connected to the brain. Mental, the level of mental causality is the behavior of mind. Uh, minds behave in a particular way. There's, there is a whole realm of causality which, uh, you know, uh, psychologists try to, to study to the study of mental causality. And we can interpret the behaviors of simple organisms based uh, compared to our own experience of mental causality. And we can see minds do what they do. Minds have a logic. They have a causality of their own. The fourth kind of causality is karma. Karma is the way that we condition. And it comes out of these. You have to have a mind. And you have to have a particular kind of mind to have karma. You know, I, uh, whether a snail makes karma or not, I don't know, but I kind of doubt it, or the kind of karma it makes is, is pretty insignificant compared to the kind of karma that human make, humans make. But we obviously are constantly creating the, uh, the kind of mental beings that we are. Our minds will function according to mental causality, but what the basis upon which they will do that is karmic. So karma causality is intention. Buddha said, when I say karma, I mean intention, I mean volition, the volitional, volitional formations. And so as you can see, we were talking about your mental formations, that's your stored up karmic results. What, and how you experience it, a rock throws, if a car drives by and flips a rock up, hits you in the head. How you experience that, that's your karma. And every one of us, absolutely every one of us will experience it differently. There may be certain things in common. There will be an element of physical pain. A Buddha would experience the physical pain, but not any mental pain or suffering. Good question. We do. And everything is interconnected. Yes, it is. And we can't see those connections because it's too complex. And and it's it's too minute and detailed and immense. So my question is, I think it gets related to what he just asked. Mm -hmm. If something 
happens to us, like a rock being tossed from the car, hitting us in the head, somehow is that not connected to us, even though it seems like it came out of the blue? Absolutely unanticipated, but we are part of this incredible web, and, and so you, we hear sometimes that there is no such thing as an accident. Yeah. And that's absolutely true. We Everything is one interconnected whole. Uh, the sense in which we're not responsible is, it would be naive to say that it's, it's because uh, ten lifetimes ago I threw a rock and hit my brother in my head that this car spun this rock out and hit me in the head. I mean, so, you know, but you are responsible for the fact that you were in that particular place when the car drove by. But at a deeper sense, uh, every part every every part of the interconnectedness of, of everything uh, you're, you're right there in with it, you know. So um, well, this, this opens up the whole uh, opens up to a whole new level which we don't have the time to go in right now, but is the next level of starting to discover the level of that interconnectedness. And what does it mean to say that um, when somebody commits volitional actions that do harm to me, that I need to own that as, as my karma? Because you see, we are. It, it's not just that the physical matter of the physical universe is interconnected like the billiard ball balls on a table. It's that at the level of uh, at the level that we would uh, perhaps have no other way of describing, but but mind. There's the same interconnectedness. We are not different from one another. And so in that sense then, everything that happens to us, whether it seems like it's from out of the blue or not, that we, we in one sense, are connected to it. It might be we're responsible for it. Yeah. So, but since there's no self, you don't have to worry. That, well, <laughs> that's exactly right. That's that is exactly right. Or another way of putting it, another way of putting it is there's only one self. You know, and of course, if there's only one self, there's no self at all. Because self is only that which is separated from non-self. So it's only when you take a totality and, and divide it into two that you have a self and not-self. So when there's no self, there's no not-self either. <laughs> but you don't... Yes, you... Well, this would seem to be the roots of equanimity, then. The very root of it. Yes, yeah. Yes. <laughs> you were right. You've got to figure it out. 
Yeah. Right? Yes, now you just have to live it. That's, right. yeah. That's where the rub comes. But no matter what happens to you as an individual, let's bring it back to the individuals that we experience ourselves to be. Uh, and doesn't matter how enlightened or unenlightened we are, there is a physical body and there, uh, there is a mind or there are the five aggregates. There's the sensations and then these different mental aggregates that we've spoken of that constitute us as an individual. And on the one hand, uh, the experience that we have as this psychophysical entity is determined. It's it's determined by our own minds on the basis of the cumulative mental formations, which are basically a reflection of of our karma. And that is under our control to change. So we may be hit in the head by a rock, but first of all, we don't need to suffer. Uh, We will all die. And so each of us as an individual psychophysical entity will eventually come to that point of death. But we don't need to say, well, why me? Why is it my karma to die? Right? What is your karma is how you experience death. Because no, it's not that it's not that by gosh, what a coincidence. I just happened to come into a universe where everybody has the same bad karma, we're all gonna die. <laughs> But we all have completely different karma as to how we're going to experience that part of our life. And the karma that you have for that experience may be of one kind today, but it can change. It doesn't need to be the same tomorrow or any time in the future. The same is true of everything else that you experience. Um, Before you die, Uh, you'll likely experience old age and disease of various sorts, and no matter what, you're sure to experience painful uh, uh, events, things that cause some degree or another a physical pain, Uh, things that have the potential to cause mental pain, like the loss of people you love and things like that. This is inevitable. There's there's, There's no way that that's not going to happen. But how you experience that, that's that is something that is uh, within your power to to determine. This is a, and two. We need to wrap this up. But this is. I'm also speaking of all of this in terms of sort of a, our selfish point of view of how, of how we're going to experience this, or good or bad. But also the kind of being that we are. We all affect each other. We all, you know. Uh, I'm not just affected by my karma. You know, I'm also affected by all of you, and each of you are affected by others. So the role that you play in this, and this is the other hugely important part of it, it's not just 
the kind of experience that you're going to have. It's also what you are going to do, how you are going to behave in the world, and how you are going to impact all of the other yous that you're in contact with. And in fact, the degree of happiness and unhappiness that you will experience in association with the events that arise in the continuum of your being are going to have more to do with the sorts of things that impact other people than anything else, ultimately. So these two are not even disconnected from each other. They're not, they're not, it's not like they're two separate, important, but parallel tracks. They're actually intensely intertwined. Well, it's just, it's, yeah, it's such a, you know, thinking about it is fascinating because it sort of dives into one point because if the, if the point is to just take the world into yourself and be responsible, mm-hmm. uh, then, and yet you're, you know, you're, your own happiness obviously is dependent on, other, on you seeing other people being happy, mm-hmm. especially dear ones, yeah. and then thinking of everyone as a dear yeah. one. Um, you know, <laughs> you're not really left with any place. There's, there's, no place, yourself. There's, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> there's no place for the selfish you to hide, is there? But so there's whole, no place for that selfish you to hang out and yeah, be separate. It's funny to think about utopian societies. I have these discussions with my brother, and they just they just like go on and on. Well, you're always going to be fixing something out there. You're always, the, because of impermanence, if you just think about it logically. But that's that would be true also bringing it into yourself. That's where my mind goes. Yes. So, anyway, I should close this up. But do you happen to notice that what we that we talked about emptiness and, and karma here? That when we're talking about the five aggregates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, <clears throat> if you're wondering about how karma works and and what we mean by emptiness, well, hopefully you saw those uh, as a part of this discussion. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it a lot. Hope you did. See you next week.